Brad's friend Marky died of cancer and Brad cried. He'd spent his life doing Zen, but Brad had never told his friend anything about Zen. So Brad wrote Marky a letter. And it made him feel a little better And then Brad wrote some more He wrote letters by the score And these are his Letters to a dead friend about Zen Letters to a dead friend about Zen Today's theme song was recorded by The Country Pumpkins Today's episode was recorded on October 26, 2019 at Mystic Journey Bookstore, Venice, California, USA. We depend on your donations to support this podcast. To donate, go to hardcorezen.info slash donate. That's hardcorezen.info slash donate. Dear Marky, my book of letters to you has come out. I hope you don't mind that I shared those with the world. I guess if you do mind, you can appear to me as a ghost or something and complain. It'd be cool to see you again, even in that form. Which brings me to the subject of this letter, which is ghosts, sort of. Every time I come out with a new book, my publicist sets up some events to promote it. My publisher's New World Library publish a lot of books in the New Age genre. So Kim, my publicist at New World Library, has a lot of connections there. She gets me on lots of New Age podcasts or gets me speaking events at New Age bookstores. So I'll often find myself giving talks in places where I'm surrounded by crystals and dream catchers and candles and decorative incense burners. I don't mind that at all. I actually kind of like those places. But they're very different from Zen spaces. Zen temples do have bells and incense burners and Buddha statues, but they're also sort of austere and even drab. Zen people tend to favor plain spaces made of unvarnished wood. There's a lot of brown in a Zen temple. Things are toned down, not too colorful. Tibetan Buddhists like lots of colors in their temples, but Zen Buddhists tend to be sort of monotone. People come to New Age bookstores to learn about the paranormal. They want to find books about ghosts and other realms of being or higher states of consciousness. I go to New Age bookstores to look for books about aliens and UFOs. Zen has a funny relationship with the paranormal. On the one hand, Zen is very much focused on the normal. It's about deeply appreciating ordinariness. One of the most popular Zen phrases is, ordinary mind is the way. So while other meditation systems and even other forms of Buddhism value achieving extraordinary states of mind, Zen Buddhists don't really care about those. Dogen, who founded the Soto form of Zen, which I study and practice, was especially well known for championing ordinary mind. He was unimpressed with the kinds of special states that are often upheld as the goal of meditation practice. On the other hand, Zen doesn't deny the existence of other states of mind or other forms of being. 
In Dogen's own writings, you can find plenty of references to ghosts, demons, dragons, and even more exotic things like celestial musicians who feed on fragrances and birds that hunt dragons. He makes a lot of references to beings in the six realms, which are heavens, there are several, the realm of angry titans, the animal realm, hells, again there are several, the realm of hungry ghosts, and the human realm. Dogen even talks about aliens. He uses the phrase idui chugyo a few times in his writings, which means to go among alien beings. Modern scholars of Dogen's works tend to play down this stuff. For example, my teacher, Gudo Nishijima, in his footnotes to his translation of Dogen's Shobo Genzo, says that to go among alien beings suggests taking independent action. The various supernatural beings and states Dogen refers to in his writings tend to be interpreted by contemporary scholars as descriptions of psychological states or exaggerations of certain human characteristics. For example, Nishijima Roshi said that when Dogen refers to Tenma, which is usually translated as heavenly demons, he's referring to overly idealistic people. I love my late teacher and I totally respect him, but sometimes I wonder if he was completely correct about this. Because it sure does seem to me that in some of Dogen's writings, he might be intending for those references to be taken literally. Even if he wasn't intending that that stuff be taken literally, he never makes that clear. He doesn't seem to have been too concerned that his readers understand this stuff metaphorically. Now you could argue that this was just the language of the times. The condition we call schizophrenia, for example, wasn't understood then the way it is now. So you may have said that someone we would call a schizophrenic was possessed by demons. You might not have necessarily believed that actual demons really controlled his body and mind, but there was no other way to describe the condition. Still, there's no way to be certain exactly what Dogen meant. But we can see by the way that he used these kinds of terms that he wasn't terribly concerned with defining them or even addressing them in any really specific way. Dogen didn't spend a lot of time describing the six realms or the hungry ghosts or any of that stuff, nor did he get into using incantations or rituals intended to communicate with such beings or deal with them in other ways like exercising them or calling upon them. In fact, in one of my favorite pieces of his writings, Dogen categorizes most of the things people who believe in the paranormal would call miracles or supernatural abilities as merely being small stuff miracles and lesser abilities. The big time miracle, he says, is ordinary life just as it is. The title of the essay in which he says this stuff is Jinzu. This word is variously interpreted as miracles, supernatural powers, mystical powers, spiritual powers, and so on, depending on whose translation you're looking at. In this essay, Dogen doesn't come across like some medieval Japanese equivalent of Richard Dawkins denying that such powers exist or belittling anyone who believes they do. Rather, he seems to accept that such supernatural powers as clairvoyance, the ability to know former lives, and even the ability to change from one form into another exist. He just says that all of that kind of stuff is nothing compared to living an ordinary life as a regular old human being. In this essay, Dogen recounts a bunch of miracle stories from the Buddhist tradition and says that all of them were examples of small stuff miracles. 
I know you never read any stories of Buddhist miracles, Marky, so there's no point in repeating the references Dogen used because they wouldn't mean much to you. But even though you weren't a Christian, you were raised in the same small town in Ohio as I was, and I know you're familiar with the miracles attributed to Jesus. You could hardly avoid hearing about Jesus in Wadsworth, Ohio, no matter how hard you might have tried. In one of my books, It Came From Beyond Zen, I tried to write about Christian miracle stories the way Dogen wrote about Buddhist miracle stories in that essay. Here's what I came up with. Jesus fed a multitude with two fishes and five loaves of bread. He raised Lazarus from the dead and was himself raised from the dead three days after his crucifixion. These are indeed great accomplishments, but they are examples of small stuff miracles, not the big time miracle. It is only because of the big time miracle that such small stuff miracles as the ones Jesus performed exist. Without the big time miracle, even the most spectacular of small stuff miracles could not occur. Jesus worked great wonders, but the greater wonder is that there is a world in which Jesus was born, that there is a universe in which that world exists, and that you and I are alive to hear about his miracles. It is only the big time miracle of existence itself that allows smaller miracles to occur. Dogen's attitude wasn't that paranormal phenomena do not exist or that they were merely figments of people's imaginations. In fact, he seems to affirm that such phenomena are real. He just doesn't think they're the most important thing. He didn't think it mattered much if some special person did something extraordinary a long time ago. He didn't think it was all that significant that certain people in his day were said to be able to do surprising things like read other people's minds or remember past lives. For Dogen, it was far more important to look at the big-time miracle, the one right before our very own eyes. You might doubt the existence of those other types of miracles. All kinds of people are able to fake things like clairvoyance or the ability to move things with their minds and so forth. But nobody can doubt the big-time miracle of the real world we are actually living in. In fact, this world is a huge mystery. Why is it here at all? Why is there something rather than nothing? Wouldn't it make a whole lot more rational sense if the entire universe was empty, or at least completely devoid of life? And human beings are the craziest thing ever. All kinds of animals lived on this planet for literally billions of years without any of them being able to talk to each other, or write music for each other, or even make the dumbest kinds of reality TV shows. Intelligence at the level even the most stupid people have doesn't seem to be necessary for survival. So why does it exist at all? We human beings are really, really weird things. Sometimes I wonder if intelligence is the next great leap evolution has made. As far as we know, the first living things were single-cell creatures who just sort of fended for themselves. Then some of those cells got together in colonies. The cells in those colonies began to specialize, and then we got groups of millions of cooperating cells that we call plants and animals. Some animals are social and cooperate in groups to a limited degree, but highly intelligent social animals can cooperate to a far greater degree than other animals. At least the potential is there for them to do so, even if it isn't always realized. Look at the average punk rock band. If you saw a group of orangutans, 
who could cooperate with each other to the degree that even a relatively simplistic band like the one I'm in, zero defects, can do, you'd be amazed. Think of the cooperation it took to put people on the moon. It's really astonishing. Now imagine what humans could do if they could put aside their petty differences and cooperate with each other to the extent we're truly capable of. We could literally reshape the entire universe. I'm just speculating wildly when I say that, Marky. But I often wonder if the true purpose of human beings in cosmic terms is something greater than we could possibly imagine. We could be on our way to becoming something very much like the devas and other higher level beings mentioned in Dogen's writings. Maybe Dogen didn't say that because he figured it would send us off on flights of fantasy and distract us from ever achieving our true potential. I really don't know. I just feel like Dogen was right when he said the big-time miracle of ordinary existence was far more impressive than any small-time paranormal-type miracle or psychic power. I plan to continue on the path that Dogen laid out and put my energy into examining the big-time miracle rather than any of the small stuff ones, although I'll probably still buy books about UFOs. Even though I'm not interested in ghosts, if you ever feel like reaching out and saying hi from wherever you are, if that's even possible, I wouldn't mind hearing from you. See you later, maybe, Brad. If I, you think about death in Zen terms, yeah, yeah. You think about rebirth or nothing, nothingness or. Don't worry about that. Just yeah, yeah. do your thing. And then you start to write this book. Mm -hmm. You start to think about this person. Yeah. And you're going through this psychologically. You start to think about right, yeah. the memories. Yeah, yeah. This and this and this. Do you start to think about or redefine what death is? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, well, it's it's real. You know, it's something that. You know, I suppose it happens to everybody uh, uh, when they reach a certain age. The the guys I'm thinking of weren't the first people in my lives who, who died. The first person was like close to my age who died was this a singer in another band we used to, go see all the time. A local guy who committed suicide, and he was 27, and I was like 21 or 22. So that was like the first sort of person close to my age who. Who I was, who who I knew, who died, um, but you know, you start you start accumulating these as time goes by, and yeah, when 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 this one guy was dying, the the one who I'm mainly thinking of when I was writing the book, I, you know, that really kind of it was real. It was a real shock. He was uh, three years younger than me, I believe, and so this was a guy you know I knew as as a uh, a little pipsqueak. Uh, sophomore in high school. I think that's what he was when I first met him. Kind of real nerdy guy. And that, um, so that kind of made me, you know, think about death because you're like, you're not only grieving that, that a friend is dying, I wasn't, you know, just, just that, but I'm going, oh Jesus, you know, if he's dying, what's, you know, my next, you know? And, and no matter how much meditation practice you got under your belt, you know, death is a, Death is one of these subjects that's hard to, for anybody to deal with. There's a guy I know in Germany uh, who, who has a retreat center there and he's in his 90s. And I had this conversation with him and he said, 
you know, I would have thought that by this age I'd be ready to go, but I'm, I'm not, <laughs> you know, and he's like 94 or something when he, when he told me this. So, you know, everybody's got that. There are stories in Buddhism that, that talk about what supposedly happens after you die. Uh, and the, the Zen form of Buddhism tends to sort of put those to the side. The, the, the Tibetan Buddhism likes to, to talk about that stuff a lot, and you won't, you won't find much of that in the Zen form of Buddhism. Although, although if you actually poke at it, the same beliefs appear more or less in both forms. Because there is a passage in Dogen's writings which sounds an awful lot like a very, very, very truncated version of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, like all condensed into a single paragraph, where he talks about the after-death states and what happens and this and that. But, but even when he's talking about that, he is he's trying to make another point, and he's using those as examples. He's trying to make the point specifically about how important it is to revere this is probably a little bit too much Buddhism, but how to revere the so-called three treasures of Buddhism, which is Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. He's saying that even after you die and, and are living in this bardo and whatever, he doesn't use the word bardo, but he uses the Japanese translation of that word. You know, you should continue to revere the, the three treasures. But he does kind of give these as examples of places where you should revere the three treasures. So it's not clear, did he actually believe that, or is he just kind of putting this mythology forth as a, you know, examples? It's hard to tell. But he's certainly not telling his audience to, that they should believe in this. He sort of t assumes they believe in it already. And my own personal view on that is I, I take all of it with a grain of salt. Uh, I, I, tend to, I tend to accept some of it as genuine possibilities, but, you know, I haven't had... I've never had the experience of remembering past lives or anything like that. Uh, some of the experiences that I've had when I've gotten really deeper into the meditation stuff have given me a sense that what we are is much bigger than what we think we are. And that gives me kind of a, a sense that, well, death is probably, and I won't guarantee anybody of this, so if it turns out to be wrong, you don't blame me, but probably more of a transition than an end. That, that's, that's what I tend to think. But what it's a transition into, I don't know. And it certainly is a separation, you know, no matter what you, how you think of it, uh, even if you do live on in some form after you die, you, you're going to be separated from a lot of things that have been very meaningful. You know, so e even if we, even if we you know, believe in life after death, you're kind of faced with that. So, and, and, that's, and that's a real hard one to think about. You think, oh, Jesus, even if I die, all of the people I care about the most, you know, I'm not going to be able to interact with them, you know, at least for a while. <laughs> Who knows, you know, if, if it's forever, I don't know. But, but, uh, but definitely for, for some period, uh, I'm not going to be separated from them. So, so it, it's, it's a serious matter, even if, you, even if you think of it that way, in terms of, of believing in life after death or reincarnation or all of that. So, you know, I don't, I, there, there's a bit in the book where I wrote about a couple of things that have happened to me that were strange. My mother died and I wrote a whole other book about that called Zen Wrapped in Karma Dipped in Chocolate, if you ever want to read that one. Um, and, uh, and the day, in the morning that she died, there was, a, there was a, something that happened after she died, but before I heard that she died, 
that makes me wonder if, if she was there. Uh, and it's in the book, and I don't, I don't, it's probably too much to go into because I would have to explain why, uh, why it was significant. But, um, you know, and there was another moment uh, when I was at Tassajara, the Zen monastery, and this guy I'd known had committed suicide about a month before, and, and I write about this in the book too. He, for a moment, he seemed to be there, not like, you know, like, not like, um, that scene in Star Wars where Obi-Wan Kenobi appears, you know, and, and stuff. It wasn't like that. It wasn't anything quite as, you know, concrete as that. But it was such a strong feeling of his presence that I really was kind of like, I, I, don't, I don't know what that was, but that seemed to be something much more than just sort of remembering him, you know, um, which is something similar to what happened after my mom died. Uh, and I didn't even know she was dead at that time. So I, you know, so I have, have certain sort of speculations along those lines. But actually, I, I, I feel a little bit like I'm cheating as a Zen person because the, the sort of standard Zen way to deal with any of that stuff is to just, at least within the tradition I came up in, is to just go, ah, no. Uh, my teacher, Nishijima Roshi, was very much, anytime somebody would bring up reincarnation, he would just say, ah, oh, that's just old Indian uh, superstition that got, that got mixed up with Buddhism. Don't, don't, don't even pay attention to it. Even though it's referenced a bunch of times in Dogen's writings, uh, he said, don't pay attention to it. And, and, I, and I think the reason is because people tend to get very distracted by that stuff. And, and then, you know, you, you, you miss the point, which is that, like I mentioned in the letter that I read, is that, that great miracle point, the point of, of like, isn't this weird? <laughs> you know, isn't this table? Actually, this table is kind of weird. Is that velvet or something? Anyway, um, you, miss, you miss all that kind of stuff. So when you talked in the letter about like the ordinary and the ordinary being really like the big miracle, yeah. like how do you balance that with like if the ordinary is the big miracle and Zazen just sitting there, that's the enlightenment, then like yeah. why would you want anything else? Like, why, <laughs> like how do you motivate yourself to like do things or even explain it to other people? Because I think it's like a very different view from like a Western type mm -hmm. view of like, okay, work harder, make more money, get better, like mm -hmm. how can we keep moving forward versus like... No, 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 this, this is cool right here. That's a real interesting question, because in, in, in a way that's something like Dogen's question. It, it, Dogen was, he became a monk very early in life. He lost both of his parents before he was even 12 years old. Uh, I think he was like seven when his mother died. So, and when he was 12 or 13, he entered monastic practice and stayed with Buddhist monastic practice the rest of his life. And his big question was, if because Buddhism does say this stuff about the ordinary and, and how this is the great matter and enlightenment is right here and all this stuff. And he would say, well, why, why are we doing these practices? Why do we do this meditation? Why do we do all this other stuff? And, you know, a variation on that is why, why do anything at all? Because Dogen often talked about it in terms of, of he'd use the phrase, I, I forget what it is in Japanese, but it's the great matter of life and death. You know, and, and his, his big thing was to examine the great matter of life and death. So, so he was very much interested in, in understanding that. Um, and, and almost to the, to the point where it might have been kind of an obsession with him. So he was very motivated to continue on with the practice and continue on with, with learning and with, um, with doing it. 
And one of the things about talking about it that's been interesting to me is when I, I, had, I came through, I got, I got into Zen for real personal reasons that, you know, of, of something I wanted to understand for myself. I didn't get into it as a sort of training to become a teacher. You know, there are people out there who do that. And I never had any serious uh, aspirations to teach it. But uh, sometime in the late 90s, I'm not sure exactly the, the year, but my teacher Nishijima Roshi came up to me and I was in Japan at the time and I was working for this company that made uh, Ultraman, made these monster films and superhero films. And he wanted me to ordain as a teacher and teach. And I didn't really want to do it, but he sort of made a situation where it more or less forced me into doing it. And as I started talking about it to other people, I realized this is a, an amazing way to learn. <laughs> you know, it's, you, you can't really embark upon it until you've, you've gone through it yourself a while, which is why they usually don't give people permission to teach uh, right away. But, but once you've kind of gone through it for a while, uh, explaining what you understand of it to others can actually act as a catalyst to further understanding. So that's one of my personal motivations for doing it. But as far as like, you know, the sort of standard motivations we usually have for doing things, you know, get money and, and live a life, I'm, I've never been that motivated by all that. You know, it was, it was, never, it was never a thing for me, and I, I don't know exactly why, but I didn't, I didn't care so much about that at, even at a young age. But, you know, as you, as you become an adult, you realize, well, you better care something about it because, you know, you got to put food on the table and you got you to get, you know, everything together and pay your bills and all that. So, you know, as I got older, it became more important, you know, and I still think, geez, you know, I hope one of my books actually sells a few copies and I can, you know, I can get rich or something. But um, I don't know if that's ever going to happen, but I figure it's sort of, you know, karma is what it is. And that's one of the sort of things I tend to believe in in Buddhism, that, that if you're destined for something like that to happen, it'll, it'll happen. If you're not, it won't. Although working towards it is also part of how, how, how you make it happen. But so, so I, I find that in my own personal case, I have a kind of, you know, I, I've reached a sort of a balance, which I try to maintain as best I can, between, you know, wanting to kind of keep everything together in, in the sort of normal workaday world and, and having a higher aspiration beyond that. And, and it's, sort of what, it's sort of why I ended up doing what I do, which is a little different. Uh, there, there are people who, who get into Buddhism and dive right into a sort of monastic practice. You know, they'll, they'll you know, get rid of all their stuff, they'll go off to a temple, you know, they'll live there and they'll, they'll do the whole thing for years and years. Zen monks, as opposed, uh, are slightly different from Christian monks in, in that there's a sense, if you're a Zen monk, that you should only be uh, cloistered for a certain period of time and then you should get out of there, uh, although some people do make a lifetime career out of it. But even so, sometimes that can be a period of 10 or 20 years that people stay in the monastery. And I never did that, you know, is the point I'm trying to make. Um, for one thing, because I, I was not really attracted to that life, but also because I thought, 
there, there's something in this, this other life, this sort of more standard life that's also important. And I had a teacher, my teacher in Japan was very interested in a sort of non-monastic practice in which you maintained a regular job and did your thing, uh, you know, uh, did all the normal things that people do. He was married and had children or at least one child. I think he had a couple of children who weren't, who didn't make it, you know, after, because um, he's, he's very old and in those days, uh, especially in Japan, it was tough. But um, he did, he did have at least one child who grew to adulthood. So he did all that, you know, he did all the normal things and also practiced his Zen practice in conjunction with that. So he'd get up in the morning, do his zazen, do, you know, go to the office, do his work at the office, and then come back and do his zazen, and he did retreats in the summers and, and, and all of these things. So he, he was kind of trying to do both. And, yeah, I don't know if I'm exactly answering the question of why. I just, it just feels like this is a, at least for me, this is a good balance to strike, you know, to, to kind of do some of the things in the normal world and, and some of the things in the, the monk world and, and try to make a practice out of that. And I don't know, my motivation is, you know, the, the simple motivation of, of knowing that if I don't get, uh, you know, a few more blogs up and a few more videos out and another book, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to pay my rent. <laughs> You know, I figured that out after a few years of doing this. Um, you know, so I so so there is that push, but I also I also feel like I've got to I've got to do it right. You know, if I'm if I'm going to write these books, you know, I can't write a crummy book, you know, just for the money. I actually did try that about I can't remember how many years ago. I I sat down and tried to write a book like a popular sort of book about meditation uh, that I jokingly called, I wasn't going to use this title, but I jokingly called it in my little files, um, you'll be reincarnated and live forever. Because, because I thought like when I, when I go to these bookstores that sell a lot of those books, that's, it seems like the titles, they all seem to be a variation on that, you know, promising you some sort of grand uh, future. And I couldn't write it, you know. I just felt I couldn't. I couldn't do it, you know. I I do three or four sentences and go. Ah, I I feel I feel like garbage writing this, you know. But I think a kind of a sincere purpose of trying to find out what this is. I mean, that that's sort of my ongoing fascination uh, is is kind of this ordinary life and going. You know, I think that's what turned me off with normal religion and normal sort of spirituality because it all, when I was looking at that as a young person, it all seemed very focused on, you know, some grand special thing, not even just a leader, but some grand special thing that was going to happen in the future or some, oh, later, yeah. Yeah, like some, some, the great somewhere else, I think is what I called it in hardcore Zen or, you know, this, this kind of, you know, whatever it is you put in there. Uh, and, and I kept thinking, well, this is pretty weird. You know, this, this life I'm living right now, if I, if I actually stop and think about it, is really bizarre. You know, this is, this is strange. And, and I feel like, you know, I tried, I toyed with the idea of sort of being that sort of nihilist or nihilist, however you pronounce it, of, of just saying, oh, well, it doesn't mean anything. You know, we just, we're just animals and, and it's an accident of evolution that we, we can think and, 
and even have spiritual aspirations. So, you know, who cares and, and try to live a life like that. But that didn't work for me. It didn't seem like any better ultimately of a, of a solution than a sort of re religious idea that says the purpose of life is to serve Krishna or whatever, you know, whatever it happens to be, you know, whatever version it, it, it is. Neither of those seemed to work. It's, but, I, but I thought there's something important must be going on here. Uh, it, it must, this must be significant, you know? And, and, and there, there are plenty of people you can find out there who say, oh, that's just, you know, you're just thinking it's significant, but it really isn't. But I don't believe that. I, I believe that this life has some sort of a, a, a bigger significance and fits into a larger scheme of things that I am probably too dumb to ever figure out. How do you not get excited about aliens? How do I not get excited about aliens? Not to, but it's exciting <laughs> to think about aliens. Is that right? How long does it take me to not get excited about aliens? How do you not get excited about aliens? I am actually excited about aliens, but it's, it's one of those things that it's very interesting. I could probably do a whole thing on aliens, and, and I'm, I'm afraid to do it because I might just lose my whole audience. But, but I. Well, yeah, I'll get a new one. But, but I, think, I think that whole aspect of, of things is interesting because it's sort, of a, it's, it's sort of a paranormal phenomena that somebody who's rational can, can go, oh, yeah, that one, you know, I might not believe in poltergeists and, you know, all these other things. But, but aliens, you know, I mean, it, it probably are. There's, there's no reason really to think that we're completely alone in this universe. And, and if they have if some kind of form of technology that we can't even imagine, then maybe they could be here, you know? And, and maybe these people who look at, you know, who report UFOs and things, maybe they aren't all crazy or, or deluded, and maybe, it, maybe it's real. And there's a lot of stuff coming out lately within the past couple of years that's, uh, that's real interesting in that field. You know, people, the, the, the military, the U.S. military and U.S. government is finally starting to uh, yeah, they're starting to acknowledge that, that they, yeah, we've been looking at these things for a while, you know, uh, they're, they're sort of, it feels like they're maybe testing the waters, you know, as to how much they want to reveal of, of what they know. My guess is they probably don't know a whole lot. My, my guess is they probably know a little bit more than the average person, but that they're probably baffled by the phenomenon as much as, as most other people. Like, they probably don't know what it is or who it is. And, I, you know, these other people who say that we have treaties with certain alien races and stuff, I, think that, I don't think that's true. But, um, but, but it is interesting. How do I avoid getting excited about it? Well, I'm excited about it, but you, um, you kind of, you know, I kind of feel like um, this is a really mysterious place. And that's just another example of how mysterious this world we're living in is. And I, um, I accept that it's an interesting thing, and I would be really interested to know if there is something else analogous to us somewhere in the universe, how they deal with it. And, you know, I sort of imagine that if, if a civilization can get past, you know, the current situation we're in, you know, with the you know, all the damage we're doing to the environment and all the nuclear weapons and so on and so forth, if they can get past that and continue on a, on a you know, a technological um, path, they're going to have to have some sort of what we call spiritual grounding as well to make that happen. I don't think we're going to, I don't think we're going to get through this 
without something like that. And I think that's why it persists. And, that, and it's why I'm not all that excited with the sort of neo-atheist Richard Dawkins-ish thing which seeks to say, let's just throw that away and be rational. Because I think that, that throw all the spiritual stuff in, away and be rational approach, it seems, sounds very dangerous to me. I think we need some kind of spiritual approach. And, you know, it's something that, there are, there are areas of life that I don't think science and rationality will ever be able to address. And I think even most scientists would, would agree with that. Uh, and, and to say that those are unimportant, I think, is, is wrong. Those are important. But we have to kind of accept that there, there are always going to be areas which we're not going to be able to quantify or, or, or measure or, or do any of those other things scientifically with, but, but that are nonetheless significant. Did you, did you explain to Marky about why you sit down and I mean, you're, you're, you're a musician kind of guy, yeah, right? Yeah. That's a noisy world. Yeah. Sitting down on a cushion and doing nothing, that's pretty weird, man. And how yeah, does that is. lead to yes. anything at all? Did you explain that to Marky? I tried to. I mean, that, that's one of the big points in the book, was, is trying to explain why I ended up doing this, this thing. And I, whether I did that successfully or not, I suppose, is up to readers to, to let me know. But, uh, but I did try to explain that. You know, for, because it, you're right, it does seem like a strange thing, and it doesn't, it doesn't make a whole lot of rational sense, especially the, the Soto style of Zen is, is the worst, if you're, if you're trying to sell it to anybody, because it's literally doing nothing. You know, that's, shikantaza is the, is the word that's used in Japanese, and it means just sitting, and that's what you're supposed to do. You're, you're, you take a specific position and pose, you know, and it's a, you know, that's significant. You're not just sort of laying back in a chair. But, but upon taking that position, you're not, you're not trying to do anything. And most forms of meditation at least give you some, something to work towards. You know, you're working towards a higher state of consciousness or enlightenment or mindfulness or, or something transcendent. But in the Zen, in the Soto form of Zen, in Dogen's form of Zen, he's like, forget all of that. Don't even try to do anything. You know, don't even try to become a Buddha. Just sit. Just sit and be purely into the act of sitting. Which is like, you know, that, that seems, to most people it seems pointless. You know, I, I've had these conversations where people try to argue with me about it. And I, I usually get tired of the arguments these days and don't even go very far with them, but they'll try to be like, well, why do you do that? It doesn't make any sense. And I go, well, you know, you got to do it for a while and then it sort of makes sense. But, but you know, but for you, me, you said yeah, something in one yeah. of your books. Yeah. I remember which one. I've read a few. I probably don't remember which one either. <laughs> where you said that sitting and doing nothing seemed, at least to you, I'm going to butcher this, mm -hmm. to be the purest form of brain activity. Well, yeah, I don't know if I said purest form. Yeah, yeah. But it is, it is, yeah, I don't know exactly what I said, but I think I know what you're referring to. But it does seem to be, if you want to know, if your question is, what is this world you're, I'm living in, then I think actually it does make sense to sit very quietly and just let it happen. You know, in a controlled space where you're not too distracted by noises and people and things, which is what a, you know, a Zen sitting space usually is, uh, you know, you just sit there and just stay very, very still and don't even try to, to have anything happen. 
and and in that way the the real situation of of what you are and what the world you are looking at is can can come up and and you know I tried to say that in the book and it sounds like you didn't even have the opportunity to expose I am not sure I ever talked to him about Zen until after my book Hardcore Zen came out. I don't know how much he knew about, and, and we even shared a house together, one of the people that I was writing to in the book. You know, we, so I was doing Zazen sometimes as his band was practicing in the basement, which is not easy to do. Um, you know, even while I lived with him, I was doing it every day. I was getting up and doing it in the morning and doing it in the evening. I was going to, to Zen things. But I didn't, I didn't talk about it much because I was a little bit, I was a little bit embarrassed about it, you know, it was a little bit like not really a cool thing. And I also didn't want to be one of those people who's like, hey, I'm into Zen, why don't you come be into Zen with me, you know, that, I hate those people. Um, so, so I didn't want to be like that. And, and I just, um, I, but I, I, we did, you know, we had a couple of, a couple of talks about it, but, you know, especially when it came to him dying, I didn't want to just, you know, give him a data download at that point in his life but um, yeah it's got it's got to come from a genuine interest you know and I feel like all the books I've written are written to, to sort of reach people who ordinarily would not be interested in this stuff and I don't know exactly how to do that but you know I've been trying to figure out ways to, to reach that audience because I think I think a lot of a lot of the people who are who are you know the self-styled into meditation crowd a lot of them seem like kind of a lost cause to me I hate to say that but but you know they because it gets very you know you get very fixed in your mind about what it is and and, uh, and a lot of people seem to get really deep into these what seem like just delusions to me you know just kind of uh, kind of uh, because those special states of mind those can be very seductive and if you get into a practice which which encourages you to get into kind of extraordinary states uh, a lot of them work you know a lot of them will put you in extraordinary states of mind that can feel very yeah it can feel and it's but it's temporary and you always come back but it, but that 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 temporariness it can give you the illusion, and this is my speculation that 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 it becomes a bit something like it, it's better than being addicted to drugs, but it becomes a little bit like being addicted to drugs. So you know you want that high of the of the extraordinary state, and that starts to become you know your whole your whole thing in life becomes the extraordinary state and getting back to the extraordinary state and those times when you're not in the extraordinary state are kind of well you know whatever you know I, I, I um, hung out with some people in in uh, um, Stockholm but I was I was meeting these guys in Stockholm and, and, and they invited me to, to do a meditation retreat there and it turned out a lot of them were into the you know um, DMT and ayahuasca and all this stuff and DMT and ayahuasca and some of these you know these these kind of mind-altering the things you know substances that you 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 ingest and then you have a, an extraordinary experience and and you know one of these guys is telling me about it and I just got the feeling of, of like oh you know it's not so much that 
it's not so much that you can't, I wouldn't say you can't learn anything from experiences like that, because you know, people seem to, to come back with some, you know, some sorts of insights there. But, but the fact that you have to you know, alter yourself to be in some kind of an extraordinary state, that seems like the wrong way to go, you know, because that seems like a way that you're, you're just getting, you're just going to keep getting stuck in this extraordinary state. And, and that extraordinary state is always going to seem better than, you know, doing the dishes or raking the leaves or whatever else you might have to do in life. It's always going to seem better. And, and I, don't, I, I don't see how you would ever get over that, that, uh, that hump there. You know, you're, you're, you're always going to be stuck in, in, um, in chasing after that thing. Uh, no matter how much you might learn when you when you have those transcendent experiences, it's still going to be a sticking point, and and that's why I'm really interested in this idea of just getting into the ordinary life. You know, just getting into like what is the meaning of life when I'm standing waiting for the bus where three of them have already passed and I don't know when the next one's going to come, which is a state I find myself in often because I don't have a car. To that point. Yeah in the past, maybe in one of your books, in definitely in one of your books, I don't know if I've seen it, maybe even on YouTube, mm -hmm. one of your podcasts or something, where you talk about an experience mm -hmm. that you had had, maybe in Japan. Oh, the, walking the, across the a bridge, bridge thing, yeah, or something yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah. You yeah. kind of had this experience, mm -hmm. this, this transcendent experience, maybe? Yeah, yeah, I mean, that and, would be and, one and, way and, to and talk how, about it. And, and did that, or how would that or did you speak of that or think of that when you were writing the book? I did, I did. I don't think I devoted a chapter to that because I'd already done that in Hardcore Zen and then I did it again in another book called There Is No God and He's Always With You. So I thought, I, I know, I don't want to bore my readers with that experience again. But it was, it, it was an, an interesting thing and it was very significant. So, uh, you know, just to give the short version to anybody who hasn't read those books, it was, I'd been doing Zazen for at least 15 years by then and was getting really committed to it, but I was also working for a normal Japanese, well, an abnormal Japanese company, but a company, you know, I was doing a job. And I don't, I, it, what's weird to me, and every time I tell the story, I end up saying this because it's always weird to me, is I don't remember when it happened. Like, I can't even put a year to it, which I, I would think something that was one of the most significant experiences of your life, you, you should at least remember what year it happened. But I, have, I really don't know. I think it was the late 1990s. Um, but I was on my way to work one morning, and it was a regular day. I don't remember what day of the week it was, but it was a normal weekday, and nothing, nothing really significant going on and there's this bridge that I crossed every day when I went and it's a little tiny bridge it's probably 20 feet you know if that it was just went over this little thing called the Sengawa which is a little tiny little river uh, that runs through Tokyo and um, somewhere near the middle of that bridge but gone before I reached the end of the bridge something happened and and at the time, I remember thinking, oh, you know, Tim, my first teacher, and Nishimoroshi, my other teacher, had never, never sat me down and said, here's what an enlightenment experience is like, you know, they, that, that's just not their style. But they had dropped a few little weird 
phrases into the conversation every now and then. Uh, one of them I remembered at that time was, it's more you than you could ever be. And this is something Tim had said to me, and I don't even remember the context, but he said, it's more you than you could ever be. And somehow that filed away in the back of my mind. And Nishijima Roshi had said to me in, in another conversation, my personality extends throughout the universe, which I thought, that sounds crazy when he, when he first said it. And I remember at, at, at the time of that experience going, oh, that's what they meant by that. You know, that's what, that's what Tim meant by it's more you than you could ever be. And that's what Nishijima meant by my personality extends throughout the universe. And I was like, oh, they, weren't, they were just trying to describe this. And, um, and so it, it really kind of, it, it, it sort of, in, in a way, it sort of breaks my life into two pieces. There's the piece that happened before that and the piece that happened after that. And, and so it was significant. But one of the things that I think made that possible was that I'd given up any sort of hope of ever having anything like enlightenment happen to me at that point. You know, I, I, was, I was committed to Zazen and I was doing the retreats, but I was, more, I was more committed to it as a way to keep myself from going completely nutso, you know, because, you know, I have a tendency to get a little um, high strung, you know. And the Zazen seemed to help that. And the more Zazen I did, the more, the more that seemed to, to settle down. And so I was, you know, I was like, well, I'm going to just keep doing this every day. And I was reading the philosophy and I was reading Dogen and going, oh, that's interesting stuff. And, you know, and, uh, but it didn't really, ha it didn't really strike me in any, any way up until then. But it sort of, but, but that did something. And, but I don't know, I am I, at a loss to say exactly what that was that happened. Um, because it, it didn't even feel like something that happened, you know, it just felt like something that was, you know, and that, and that continues to be there. And, you know, if I, if I describe it as an experience, that's just one aspect of it. It also seems to be a living presence, you know, in a way, uh, too, that, you know, in saying something that happened 20 years ago is a living presence is a kind of a weird thing to say, I realize. But, but it was, you know, significant and it, and it had some impact. But it also, you know, I don't know, I think everybody who does a meditation practice for long enough will have certain experiences. And I'd had, even before then, certain other weird experiences around meditation. But most of them sort of left me going, um, gee, that was weird, you know, or, 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 or made me very excited. A couple of them made me real excited. You know, I can, I can remember, you know, getting really excited about one of them. And this is, I wrote about in Hardcore Zen, where I just had to tell Nishijima Roshi about this extraordinary experience that, that had happened to me, where I felt like I had, I had seen the entire universe from the perspective of God or something. I didn't put it that way, but it was, it was this really tremendous experience. And he sort of listened to that and went, you work for a company that makes cartoons, don't you? <laughs> he really, and, 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 and you, you, you know, you guys laugh and I think that's the appropriate response. But at the time it was devastating, you know, to hear that because I, I was like, 
I thought that was I thought that was the whole you know I thought that's why we'd been doing meditation to have this you know grand experience and he just kind of you know he didn't literally smack me but it felt like a you know like being smacked in the face and and it made me kind of angry I mean my 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 initial reaction to him saying that was like well I don't we we make cartoons as a you know we have a cartoon division but we make live action (laughs) and being like well what does this guy know because I've seen the universe from the perspective of God and he's just some (laughs) little you know five foot tall Japanese guy you know what what the hell does he know about my experience and I was getting really you know hot and, and under the collar about this I remember like just being fuming about this and then I kinda after fuming about it for a few hours kinda stepped back metaphorically and said you know if I have had the experience of seeing the universe from the perspective of of God why would I care what this you know little five-foot-tall Japanese guy (laughs) thinks about it but obviously I do care what he thinks about it so that that makes me think well maybe that experience isn't exactly what I thought it was if it still left me you know caring about what he thought about it and uh, and and so I just I just kind of said, well, back to the drawing board. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I just keep sitting again, and and uh, and and like I say, I'm I'm really grateful that I ended up doing a practice where where the uh, teaching was to not get too excited about such things. I just want to acknowledge and appreciate this um, perspective around like, the the greatest miracle being the most ordinary life, and mm-hmm. I think it's um, deeply ironic that you're. In Kid listed journey by this Californian, speaking that truth. Yeah, yeah. Because um, I personally get so jaded sometimes, not because I'm wearing nothing wrong, but around this like um, the fluffiness of spirituality, mm-hmm. where yeah, people are dancing with their crystals and like having enlightenment, you know, experiences and selling it to people on Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fluffiness. That's I should try that on Instagram. Yeah. Thank you for thanking me for being here. <laughs> yeah.
transmutation was the one I had a hard time with. I'm like, what is trans? I had to go look that one up. Um, but, um, but he talks about that. And, and, I, and I think, okay, well, that's, that's one way to approach it. But yeah, you don't want to get stuck there. You know, that's, that's the problem. You know, and, and it's even psychic abilities. I mean, one of the, I don't, I don't talk about it much. But one of the things that got me into to Zen in the first place, or getting interested in, in learning about spirituality, was because ever when I was a child, I, I, I had, uh, you know, I don't want to make any great claims for it because it was never all that useful. But I had these like abilities that I, I didn't see anybody else having. You know, I, I could sort of know things before they happened, or 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 see things that I, not see in the sense of visually seeing, but know where things would be. It helped me when I was in my big record collecting phase, uh, because because I would be like, go there, and I'd be, you know, so I'd go to the to some record store, and then I'd find this like, oh, there they they marked this rare Who album at, at ten dollars. What are they crazy, you know? And I'd go and buy it, you know. Um, I used to do that all the time, and I felt like oh, I'm taking advantage of these people <laughs> sometimes, you know, because I just like walk into. I'd have this this thing like you know, go to the Salvation Army on such and such a street. It wouldn't be that definite, but I just have a, a sense of it in my mind. And I go there and I'd be like, Jesus Christ, look at that. It's Blue Cheer, you know, or some rare album that shouldn't be at a Salvation Army. I have a question. Yeah. yeah. Um, do, do, you, do you meditate? Yeah, yeah, that's what I do, yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, because yeah. Oh, yeah, I came in late. Yeah, yeah, I saw yeah, you yeah. came in late, so that's fine. Yeah. Okay, because meditation, it clears the way way for these kind yeah, of superpowers yeah. to show up. Yeah, and, and it does, and that's one of the kind of, well, since you weren't, weren't here at the beginning, I've, I've been doing um, Zen meditation for 35 or some years. You know, I started quite, I'm older than I look, and I started quite young. So it's been, you know, it's been a long path, and I've been doing it every day. And, and yeah, there is, you do clear out a lot of stuff, and that can help yeah, yeah, and that can make a and that can and that can make other things available, which is why I remember Tim talking about one of his early teachers, and he described him as being annoyingly psychic. <laughs> you know, like it's, this teacher of his was was like, and it can do that. And it's one of the things I think Zen training tends to. One of the reasons the Zen school tends to downplay a lot of that stuff, because this is what I was talking about earlier. Um, is because it can get seductive, you know, and and yeah, and you don't want to you don't want to get too too seduced by all that. Uh, yeah, you'll you'll lose you'll lose the grounded you'll lose the very groundedness that allowed that to happen, you know, and and that and that's a bummer, <laughs> you know. You don't so so um, so that's what I. You know, that's, that's how I've been dealing with it. Like, like I, I bet you this store has a couple of books on how to have lucid dreams. But I, I, at one point in, in my path of this Zen stuff, I was having so many lucid dreams that were so vivid, I just, I just got tired of them, you know? I mean, at first they were real exciting. It was like, what can I learn from this? And, and traveling the astral plane and all this crazy stuff. And then... Well, I don't know if that's exactly what it was, but I could I could do all kinds of things that you can only do in dreams, you know. And there was a, there was sort of an access to to something there, 
But after a while, I was like, oh, I don't know. I just want to get some sleep, you know, <laughs> sometimes, you know. So thank you very much for being here. Thank you. Brad. Appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, thanks for making it We depend on your donations to support this podcast. To donate, go to hardcorezen.info slash donate. That's hardcorezen.info slash donate.